Good morning, Bethany. Uh, today we're going to be reading Luke chapter 11, verse uh, 37 through 54. If you don't have a Bible with you, um, feel free to grab one of the pew Bibles that are on the floor in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible already, um, you know, we would love to have you take, one, take it home with you. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not, you, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Desi. Thanks for being willing to read such a bright and cheery passage to us this morning. <laughs> Thanks for doing that. Well, we are back in the Gospel of Luke today. We come back to the Gospel of Luke, and we are, um, we are going to be talking about this interaction between the Pharisees and Jesus with kind of a standoff of epic proportions today. So in Jesus' uh, famous confrontation with the Pharisees and scribes, where he pronounces these six woes. You heard Desi say that word multiple times, woe, woe, by addressing their legalism. And those woes are kind of meant to make us go, whoa. <laughs> woe is equal to, whoa, watch out, what is happening here? Jesus is sharing some big, heavy pronouncements. You might even say judgments. These big woes. Well, even if you didn't see the movie from the 1960s, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which I know a lot of you did, 
The scene is burned into our collective pop culture memory, even if you haven't seen the movie. You've probably seen this image pop up somewhere. Clint Eastwood in the movie from 1966 plays this character, Blondie. He's one of three men who are hunting for this hidden stash of gold, if you remember the, the story. And the movie climaxes in this desert graveyard where Blondie and Angel Eyes and, and Tucko, these three guys, they're all there seeking this buried treasure. And circumstances have led them to this moment, and conflict is inevitable between the three parties. And if you remember the movie, it's an intense moment with, I watched the scene again this morning on YouTube just to kind of get my feel for it. Intense, there's these shifting eyes, you know, the hands are twitching at the sides for the guns, and they're looking all around. This morning we have a standoff. It's really what we have. We have a standoff between three parties. And conflict is inevitable in this moment now in Luke chapter 11. Between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the scribes, but it doesn't take place in a graveyard. Uh, like it did in this movie, but it takes place around a dinner table. Jesus is welcomed in. He's welcomed into this conflict. Probably a table full of food, much like your Thanksgiving celebration. And it, also, not like the movie, it's not between equals. Well, Clint Eastwood is never really equal with anybody in his movies, right? But you get what I'm saying. I mean, it's three humans here, and, and with our story today, it's the Son of God with the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember, the Pharisees are those religious leaders who are obsessed with keeping the moral law and adding to it as well. Uh, by the time we get to Luke chapter 11, uh, there probably are some 6,000 rules that they have been uh, brought out of the law, the Torah, the Old Testament, but also tradition as well that have be, uh, brought together this conglomeration of many, many rules that have made it really hard to follow. And as Jesus accepts the invitation and dines with them, it sets the stage for the conflict. But what did Jesus do? Did he insult them with uh, politics at the Thanksgiving table? No, he didn't do that. Did he comment on Grandma's uh, yucky cranberry sauce? No, he didn't do that. He just didn't wash his hands. That's it. He, here it comes. He, he just didn't wash his hands. That's it. He comes to the table there, and they're upset that he didn't. Now, if you ask my kids, they would think, these aren't Pharisees, that's my dad. <laughs> Wash your hands, kids, right? You say that many times to your kids. But it really wasn't that Jesus didn't wash his hands. That wasn't it. It was that Jesus didn't respect their extra-biblical customs and rules. That was the issue. And this one just happened to be hand-washing, which wasn't even part of the law. It was a, maybe a tradition, but it wasn't part of God's law, the conflict uh, was here. This was a conflict of external legalism of the Pharisees. And the deeper, truer, internal righteousness Jesus was seeking. And this is important for us today. Because hidden in the heart of every Christian is the temptation to be a tiny legalist. Legalism works from the outside in, where the gospel works from the inside out. We're going to talk about that today. We're going to take a look at some symptoms of legalism and see how the gospel solution is really to have a soft heart. So three things we're going to do today. First, define legalism. That's what we're going to do. And second, we're going to look at symptoms. And third, we're going to look at a gospel solution. So hopefully you've got your outline. We like to take some notes. If you're somebody that learns by taking notes, do that and jot some things down and have your scripture open to Luke 11. 
Let's look at the first couple of verses to help us define legalism. Here's what it, we're calling it. Legalism is an obsession over external moral conformity at the expense of inner transformation. External conformity, morality, with kind of overlooking the interior life or our heart or our motives, maybe you might say. Or let's put it a couple different ways to kind of really unpack this. You can obsessively pursue the right thing and in the process do a lot of wrong. (laughs) Or here's another way to say it. You can try to keep from doing the wrong things by not breaking the rules rather than cultivating a heart of, of virtue, of love, of God through the gospel that would lead to obedience as well, but from the inside out. Legalism. So we're not going to argue today that we're not called to be obedient. We're not going to argue against the law or being obedient. But we're going to talk about and argue more for looking just where does the motive come from and the desire for obedience come from for the follower of Jesus. The problem isn't following the rules. That's not the problem. The problem is the reason maybe for doing it in the first place. And Jesus helps us see the difference between the internal and the external morality in his response to the Pharisees' astonishment at not washing his hands. Look at verse 39 with me of chapter 11. And the Lord said to them, Now you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and uh, and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Jesus responds to their astonishment, their shock, at not keeping their customs by saying, look at this, look, you're just so concerned with the outside, and yet the inside's like a, a, a tomb. Remember other place he says you're like a whitewashed tomb? On the outside looks great, but the inside is rotting dead bones, is what he said. Saying something similar here. He's saying to them, you've reduced the law to these manageable external rule-keeping, which, by the way, can be done simultaneously with an absolute internal total rebellion. A couple examples. Think, think of an employee following the boss's rules, as many did post-COVID, to return to work from the remote back to the office and how they were complying, but internally, like, grumbling. We got to go back in the office. You can comply on the outside and on the inside be seething. Or think of when you make one of your children apologize and they do the external thing, but you know what's going on inside. Or with your spouse, sometimes you do, yeah, I'm sorry, really sorry I did that, you know, please forgive me. You get it. The external does not match the internal. Or when you comply with your spouse's request, but internally you're kind of ridiculing him or her with what you really want to say. We all know you can kind of do that external thing. Or here's a couple other examples of that external, outwardly looking great, but maybe inside is kind of corrupt or rotten. Think of the purity culture of the 1990s where we spent a lot of energy telling youth not to break the rule, no sex before marriage rule, and we placed little emphasis or less emphasis on gospel-driven love for Jesus and virtues of godliness and faithfulness that might produce somebody who wanted to wait till marriage. We kind of had it backwards. Or how about the daily devotional culture of Bible reading? Do you know that nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to, you have to do a daily quiet time? You think, why would a pastor ever say that? Is it good for you? Yes, 
Would I encourage you to, to do that? Yes. But some of you grew up in places and churches and families maybe. If your motive to read the Bible was an external guilt of being found out by parents or God or, or ridiculed by your peers maybe, rather than a deep love of exploring the depths of God's character, how enjoyable and transformative is that kind of Bible reading when you're doing it for guilt? See, we can all kind of have that external conformity and miss the heart of it. In fact, legalists usually are the best Bible people. They're the best Bible people. They just get stuck on the rules without actually enjoying Jesus. That's kind of where we're getting at today as we define it. The legalist is more concerned with appearances and looking good on the outside. And we all struggle with this. Whether it's when our child acts up in church or our spouse says something ridiculous in a public setting or a, when we're hanging out at dinner with couples or something like that. We all struggle with this and you get that feeling like, oh, we're, we're looking so bad right now. The reason this is such an issue is that the Pharisees, they claim to represent God. So this is a big deal to Jesus. They're claiming to represent God here. And yet, what Jesus is saying is, you are hypocrites. Inside, the verse says, they were greedy and wicked, even though on the outside they looked pretty good. I love this quote from Jonathan Dodson from a Crossway article. He's kind of helping us define it in another way. Legalists, he says, follow biblical commands without cherishing gospel promises. They get stuck on ethical rules without enjoying gospel graces. They're like people who can describe a sweet plum in detail, its semi-oval shape and smooth, deep purple skin, but they don't know its perfectly balanced sweetness because they haven't tasted it. Their knowledge of the Bible is objective, not subjective. They stay outside of the gospel. When we live out of legalism, we measure ourselves and others on moral, spiritual, missional, you name it, performance. Religious performance operates on the assumption, I, if I perform well, God will accept me. This is, assumption is subtle and deadly. Now you hear that, like, you might think, well, that's not me. Yeah, well, we would never do that or never give lip service to that. But we're going to unpack it a little more today in the symptoms that I think will help us see this is something we all can be tempted to and we can all struggle with. But the answer to legalism isn't finding our meaning, meaning um, through license either. And license, I mean just like, well, just do whatever you want then. Just do whatever I want. As if I can find meaning by breaking as many rules and traditions and expectations as possible. You know what? That's actually just another form of legalism. Religion or irreligion. Why? Both are obsessed with rules. One with keeping, one with breaking. <laughs> They're both obsessed with rules. Before we look at an answer to our problem, let's unpack some of these symptoms now in these woes. Um, by looking at this, uh, this feast they're having together, some of the symptoms he exposes for us. Here's, and here's what we're going to put them under a heading. Symptoms of legalism. What do they do? They manifest a heart of hypocrisy. That's the root of what Jesus is getting at. Because remember, Pharisees and scribes, they represent God. They speak for God. But actually, as we think of our... Uh, uh, New Testament doctrine of the, the, uh, the saints, all of us, we all represent Jesus. If you call yourself a Christ follower, you represent God. So hypocrisy to Jesus is very serious if you claim his name. Hypocr hypocrisy. You can look really good on the outside and yet have a hypocritical heart, Jesus is saying here. Hypocrisy, that word, comes from the Greek word and tradition of acting. You know, remember the Greeks wrote those great tragedies and plays, and even thousands of years ago, they would get on these grand stages and act in front of people. And these Greek 
uh, Greek tragedy actors would wear a mask. And how does that help us understand hypocrisy? Because an actor could, on the inside, feel nothing like the character. Maybe the character is supposed to be, oh, the sad one on the right, distressed one. They would hold up the mask, but on the inside, it wouldn't matter what they were feeling, that you saw the mask. Or they're supposed to be the happy one, and maybe that actor, maybe his wife left him that night before, but he's wearing that happy mask. You see the disconnect between the face and what's going on in the heart, the external and the internal. It's play acting, is what Jesus is saying. Today, we kind of most associate that word probably with politicians. <laughs> Hypocrisy. When they get on a stage or they're on, they're on stage persona. Sometimes it's pastors too, actually. Uh, or any time, one in leadership. What you see on stage maybe isn't what you see off stage behind the curtain. That kind of thing. But lest we not examine our internal lives as Jesus tells us to do, we want to be careful. We'll look at verse 41 real quick. Uh, he says to them, but give as alms those things that are within. There's that term, inside. And behold, everything else is clean for you. We're going to unpack that verse a little bit later. But to make sure we look at our own internal lives, let's quickly look at the symptoms. Here's the first one. Legalists discuss your, uh, your sin behind your back. That's what we're going to see in these. We're going to take all these symptoms from these woes. A legalist discusses sin behind your back, not with you. As we see in the story, the final verse, 53, what do the Pharisees and scribes do? They totally disagree with Jesus. They're not on the same page with him. Uh, and, uh, and we see that. Look at verse 53 with me. As he went away from there, so he left. He's gone. Now the scribes and Pharisees begin to press him hard. And they provoke him. They want to uh, have him speak about all these things. They're lying in wait for him. They want to catch him. They, they start to scheme. They start to plan. They want to catch him, rather than truly seeking to understand him, even if they disagree, and, but maybe even change their ways, maybe? Maybe even change their mind through a great dialogue with him. They go behind his back, and they've been doing it since the beginning, and they'll do it right until the day he dies. They go behind his back. That's what a legalist does, because they actually have no real desire to change or, or come into any kind of discussion that might cause them to change. They're always convinced they're right. Or at least need to keep up that appearance that they're right, even if inside they know they're a fraud. Because what would happen? What would happen if, if I had to change my mind about something and I had to do it publicly in front of my peers, in front of the others that respect me? I mean, I just couldn't do that. Or I, I can't be shown to be wrong. My whole identity is based on me being right. That's what the Pharisees are struggling with here. So what I'll do then is I'll sacrifice the opportunity for real change and real growth. I'll sacrifice the relationship even and listening to someone else's opinion if it keeps me looking good, to save face, keeps me, my image of being the right one intact. See how it can be really subtly dangerous? Or I guess for us it's saving mask, not face, right? <laughs> Do you have the temptation to, to talk about others in the language of those people? That would be kind of our co contemporary, maybe, example. Those people, they're the problem. Or maybe after it was the family Thanksgiving dinner. Maybe the, the outer family kind of left and they all went home and the inner family was left there and then you kind of started doing the thing, did you see, uh, did you see how much so-and-so ate? Did you hear what he said to her? Like the, the, inner, the outer family's gone, the inner family's left behind. You know that drill. That happens sometimes. If so, you may be a legalist, or at least tempted to it. Here's our second symptom. 
As Jesus says, it's always better to talk face-to-face than behind a back. Here's the second one. Legalists major in the minors, but they minor in the majors, such as justice and love and compassion. It's the first official woe in verse 42 and similar theme in verse 46. What, what happened there? The Pharisees were really great at tithing. They were really great at giving their gifts of the, the spices and, the, and the, the herbs that it mentions there. They were really good at tithing, but obedience and holiness that cost them something more, yeah, not, not so much. That really wasn't their thing. The smallest herb tithes are mentioned here, and they were to tithe on these things. Uh, but it's contrasted against the call to seek justice for all people and, and to love God. And, and verse 46 hints at a compassion that they were lacking for others that had hard burdens. I would say this one probably, and maybe there's, I think we're going through six or five of them, but this one probably hits closest to home in, in our world, whether they call it the evangelical world or um, where we might possibly have a, a temptation to be more pharisaical. Um, it was one of the reasons, actually, that in the church we have tended to focus more on the sexual sins I already mentioned in the church, or your Bible reading, or tithing, or drinking, or dancing, or voting even. They all became kind of these extra-biblical laws. But we've had a temptation to ignore, maybe calling out things like rampant materialism in the church, or a lack of love for the outsider. Or, I know this one's true, and some of it may be rightfully so with some of the way the term is thrown around today or misused, but the term justice was God's term. He was always the one that wanted justice for people first and foremost, a rightness, a righteousness, a goodness to take place at all levels of society between all different relationships. But that term can make us really uncomfortable. You just mentioned the term social justice, and there can be this kind of, are we going woke, you know? when God is the one that loves justice. There's a pathway to pursue both. A justice for people, you could even call it a social, it just means the people, and keep the gospel central and seek conversions of lost people. There's got to be a way to keep both of those together. Jesus does. Pursuing the good of humanity is really what we're after when, when, when we say justice. We want that for everybody. And in fact, historically in the church, actually up until kind of modern times, the gospel has always tended to put Christians on the front line of the social ills in a town, in a city, in a culture. And I'm talking people like us, Bible-believing evangelicals. It was really up until modern times when maybe it got co-opted or twisted, the idea of justice, or there were some Christians that did separate justice and became just a social gospel, and they lost the cross and redemption, which we can never do, or we're not really Christian. But the church was always at the front end of that, up until really modern times, really. The church is not only to be in the business of winning souls, as important as that is, and overlooking the social stuff. We're to do both, because they complement each other. Why is that hard for a legalist? Why is that hard for a legalist? Why is it hard just for humanity, really, for all of us? Because justice and love and compassion, they cost a lot more internally of us 
than giving to an issue, don't they? Giving to an issue is good and right, and Jesus says you should do both here. We want to be clear. Verse 43, he says you should do both. But can we pursue a gospel love of Jesus that promotes and motivates more than duty and does away with maybe those kind of those dividing lines we have, whether it's politics or cultural, and just creates a heart that just wants to pursue compassion for others. And even that word justice for others. Jesus says it here, that word. Pursue the right, the good for all. I think we can continue to grow here. I know some of you really have that heart and want to see that more for us as a church. And we can't do everything. No church can do everything. But I think we can do more. I think we can. I've been praying in line for that for our church. There's even a couple opportunities on the horizon that I'm hopeful might materialize. But we got to pursue that heart of justice, which really is just the heart of Jesus for the hurting. Here's our third symptom. Legalists love recognition. Legalists love recognition, Jesus is pointing out to the, the Pharisees. So it also kind of, this hypocrisy can kind of bleed into a pride One of the challenges and one of the places this, I think, shows up in our culture today is that we've kind of turned our culture into a, a culture of recognition or an elitist mentality on both sides of the aisle, kind of a flexing of might and power. That's what's being modeled to us and, and to our, our young people today. The loudest voice, the most shocking act, the biggest social media burn. These are ways that we promote and, and model in a bad way, a negative way, to pursue, pursue recognition and change today. Not really the long-term doing the hard work of relationship with people that are different from you. And don't get me wrong, there are times when a loud voice is needed to call out wrong. There's a place for that. There's a place of the prophetic in the church and in the world. But when it's done, as the Pharisees wanted the front seat in the sanctuary uh, Jesus said, when it's done for kind of performative sake, and the front seat in the sanctuary is now the phone and the, the, the social network out to the entire world. The megaphone is very big and loud now. When it's done for performative sake or recognition, we miss out as a people, we miss out on the, the call to humble servitude, that Jesus calls you and I too, and we lose the heart of why we're pursuing good things in the first place, for the good of another, not for more likes or a standing in the community or a standing in the church, as Jesus said to the Pharisees. You love the front row. Actually, I do, I want, we want people to sit in the front row, just so you know, because we're getting full in here. And so if, if we ask you to sit in the front row in the next few weeks, don't think back to this sermon. We know you don't want to sit in the front row because it's very lonely up here, isn't it, Robin? It's very lonely in the front row. Um, we're going to ask actually some of you because look in the back. It's all in the middle. It's all full, but that row right there, it's that row there. We might ask you to do that, so... Um, we're not referencing this, this verse. But the Pharisees did it because they wanted the best seat. Um, they loved the loud greeting on the street. They did it for recognition. That's what they're really getting at. Doing things for recognition. Now, it's okay to receive a compliment, isn't it? Yes, it is. You give the opportunity for someone to honor you. And all over the New Testament, Paul does it. And he says in Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So it's okay to receive a compliment, but if we're doing all we do for just that sake, you might border into that legalism. Would it be that Jesus would have to address maybe that we honor people too much 
rather than the more subtle, challenging temptation we have of seeking recognition. What does Jesus say about this way? He takes it seriously. The hypocritical heart, the prideful service, he says, it leads people to death. It's our fourth symptom. Legalists lead people towards death. If we build our lives, if you build your life on some performance or standing or, or piece of your identity uh, in, in the most major way, anything other that is focused uh, more on the external, without an internal gospel center of Jesus Christ at the middle of it all, that way always leads to death because it's based on performance for acceptance with God or standing in the community or your reputation. That way leads to death. Look at verse 44, Jesus says, and he puts it in a very kind of uh, interesting graphic way. He says, woe to you. You're like unmarked graves. And people walk all over them without knowing it. He's saying, you get people close to death. And for the Jew, you know, not walking on a grave would not be good. And we kind of have the same feeling today. And you go to a cemetery, you don't really want to step on the grave. Or touching a dead body for them was very uh, unclean, they would call it, and based in the law. And so he says, you're like an unmarked tomb. You bring people right to the door of death with this legalism stuff. That one's quick. Let's look at our fifth symptom. Legalists. Use a wisdom of the world, and that wisdom becomes a roadblock to everyone else coming to the kingdom of God. What I love about Jesus, about halfway through this story, I love that he's like this, he's an equal opportunist with his woes. Did you catch it? <laughs> about halfway through the story. Here are the Pharisees, to go back to the setting of the story, they're taking a beating, like the Pharisees, woe after woe after woe. But there's this third party. Remember our standoff? There was three there, one in the middle, and then the two guys on the side, remember? The scribes. They're like the lawyers. They understand the scripture, and they were there too at the dinner the whole time. They're the knowledgeable ones, the law nerds, you might call them. That's who they are. They studied and knew what following the law meant. What a moment that must have been. Let's call him Asher. He was Asher the scribe there at the dinner. It's a good Jewish name. Asher the scribe had to open his big mouth. He says in verse 45, hey, Jesus, by insulting the Pharisees, aren't you insulting us too? And Jesus says, yeah, Asher, I got something for you too. <laughs> I got a few woes for you too, Asher. Asher had a rough night back at the synagogue, I think. This, this wisdom of the world is what he talked about with them. For all their knowledge, and the scribes were the knowledgeable, they were the smart ones, they were the law nerds. For all their knowledge, he says, you have kept people from the kingdom of God. He says, you've been a roadblock in your obsession with the rules and the external law and the dotted I's and crossed T's, forgetting that God looks at the heart, like he told King David. It's the strongest rebuke, actually, of the whole section. Look at verse 52. Woe to you, lawyers. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves. And you've hindered those who were also trying to enter. Why is this such a, har a harsh rebuke? Because a religious leader is told what is true about them is the exact opposite of what they believed about themselves. They thought they were the way ushering everybody into the kingdom. And Jesus says, you're the exact opposite, actually. He says, your knowledge doesn't save. And in fact, you're guilty of the prophet's blood, just like your ancestors, all the way back to Cain, who killed Abel. Ouch. 
That would have stung. Is you're guilty of that. I guess for us, how would we apply this in our day and age? I guess for us, when we're living out our faith, let's treat people as people first. Not as brains on a stick just to win an argument with. Not arguments to be won. Or even souls to be saved. But hear me, although that is a great desire and goal of ours, we want to treat everyone with dignity and respect and love them as human image bearers first along the way, hopefully, to them accepting Christ. Let's treat them as people first. Rather, as he said, yeah, you just, you're like, you're like walking books, he said to them. And you bump into people and you hurt them. Is how he was describing these scribes. Treat them as people first. And those other things will come along. This is what legalism does. And what it doesn't do, let's talk about this, I think it's the final symptom, the fallout, the aftermath of legalism in a community, the scourge on a community, it's our final symptom. Here's why it's so dangerous. Because this is what legalism does. It creates immense emotional damage because rules and problems come before relationships in a legalistic community or family or workplace. The rules and the problems are placed before the relationships. When rules and problems to be solved become the primary thing, people get hurt. Or you end up with Jesus on a cross, actually. (laughs) That's what happened. Rules and problems were the biggest thing, and so they killed them. We end up with church splits when rules and problems are bigger than relationships. We end up with broken families at times when rules and problems. We, ended up, we end up with wounded children. We end up with a divided nation, really, when rules and problems are bigger than the relationships. Now, of course, those are important. We're going to talk about that. We end up with cultures of fear, And judgmentalism rather than transparency and and honesty and vulnerability and forgiveness and, and grace. Now, as I said, of course, obedience is of utmost importance to Jesus. Without holiness, no one will see God, Hebrews says. Holiness matters. But we don't want to be legalist, that kind of pursuit of goodness. And we can't pursue license, just breaking the rules. That's not the way either. Remember, both are obsessed with rules and rule uh, keeping or breaking. It's like the prodigal son and the older brother. They're both religion and irreligion, both ways to stay away from God. The older brother kept all the rules, yet his heart was far from God. The younger son thought, I'm going to break all the rules, and he was far from God too. There's got to be a different way. Both are ways to stay away from God, to avoid your need of God. One says, I'm good enough. Religion, Phariseeism, legalism, I've got God in my back pocket. The other says, I don't buy into your rules or your God. I'm doing my own thing. But as we get to this point, we're about to get to the kind of solution. Let's say we've gotten here and we're thinking, you're here and you're thinking, well, okay, the Pharisees, I'm not making the connection, though, to to our modern day. And maybe even thinking, I'm not sure I struggle with this. Let me give a few more examples before the solution. Because I want us all to be able to take part in the solution today and see our need of it. Here's a few just from our families or culture or just ways we might talk. Legalism produces the popular phrase, and you've heard it, my facts don't care about your feelings. You heard that one? <laughs> it's out there. 
Only legalism could produce that. That, of course, facts are important, but should we also care about the person we're bashing with our facts? Absolutely. My facts don't care about your feelings. Legalism at times has produced a place, um, think back in our church history, KJV-only church. Now hear me. I am not saying don't use that version. Some of you love it. And that's absolutely a beautiful version. But a church that says that's the only way, and if you read something else, you're some subless par Christian, that was legalism in our church history. It was real. We've dealt with it in the church. Or the worship wars. We only sing contemporary songs. We only sing hymns. What's at the heart of that? Legalism, right? Some of these are meant to be funny, too. Let's say you're invited to Silver and Spice, 55 and older. You're like, I'm not going to that. I'm not old like them. (laughs) That could be a subtle form of legalism because you've got this image of yourself and you just can't let that image be tainted. Or how about spouses that can't address a disagreement because one or both just can't possibly ponder being wrong? Or how about you firstborns in here? That's me. That older brother syndrome. You were so annoyed always growing up with your younger sibling who was always screwing up. What could have been at the heart of that? Legalism. How about our nation? Prohibition. How well did that work? Didn't work so well, did it? It was a disaster. Because our nation took something and made something more strict and extra biblical and tried to make it work, and it didn't work. Maybe a good motive, getting rid of alcoholism, but it was a disaster. Or how about thinking back to when you were young or our youth, you know, thinking like, I won't interact with somebody. I used to do this as a teenager. I won't interact with somebody just because of the type of the music they listen to. You know, or because they're part of that group, whether it's jock or, or um, techie or artistic, they're part of the art, artistic group, and like we wouldn't interact because of, you know, you know that guys growing up in high school, that, that sense of like, at the root of that could be legalism. How about parenting <laughs> or grandparenting? When we're more concerned that they broke the rule and just getting them to behave rather than the heart behind that lie they told or cruelty they showed to their sibling. We just want to get the behavior to stop now, right? At the root of that is the necessity to survive as a parent. I get that. (laughs) But it also could be illegalism at the root of that. Or how about anger and lack of compassion that goes both ways across political aisle? Or here's a good question to ask that might help you see where you might struggle with legalism. Where do you feel a lack of compassion where you know you're supposed to have compassion? Might be the best question to to probe your own heart. Where do you feel a lack of compassion where you know you're supposed to have compassion? That might be the place where you struggle with legalism. But we got to get to the solution, don't we? Because it's a lot of woes, isn't it? And woes are like, whoa, Jesus. Here's the solution. Legalism kills us like a slow silent, like carbon monoxide, where what we truly need is like a breath of the Spirit in our lungs. Both legalism and license even, I would say, they kill like carbon monoxide. They're not easy to notice, but it's really deadly. Silent, yet it's really deadly. 
Legalism strangles a church, a family, an individual because there's no gospel joy. There's no heart of joy. It's all duty and no delight. It's being able to describe the plum without having any idea what it tastes like. Remember back to the quote? You can sure talk about it, but you don't know what it tastes like. The answer is in verse 41. It's subtle. It's easy to miss. But let's go back to it for a minute. I said we go back. He said, give alms as those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you then. Give alms of those things that are within. Jesus is saying that like that honorable act of giving to the poor, you should care for your inside the same way. What was that like for somebody? Giving alms back then, giving to the poor. We do it today. It takes sacrifice, a conscious effort, having mercy and gentleness and love and kindness and compassion for those. Jesus in this verse is giving us permission to tend to our interior hearts the same way. In fact, he's telling you you should. Like giving alms, do it in t- in interiorly, in your heart, with your inside. Treat yourselves with the same way, the care, concern, kindness, gentleness. In fact, he's saying if you want to be a person who is clean, not just outside, but all things he said there, from inside out, you have to tend to your heart on the inside. With what? Prayer. The Word and the people of God, all of us together, to soften our hearts, to move away from the hard-hearted legalist that's only concerned with the external, to be soft and compassionate and loving. Remember, Jesus was teaching, as we saw just a few weeks back, about being filled with something internally, filled with the light, his word, his teaching, rather than darkness, and to repent like the Ninevites did. Those verses just up in chapter 11. Jesus is saying... Make sure your heart is soft. It will lead to a repentant and loving life that's clean inside and out through prayer and the word and the people of God together celebrating the gospel and making much of Jesus together. That's how we move away from legalism. Not to license, but to real gospel-motivated obedience, which obedience is ever only really obedience if it comes from the inside out anyways. Jesus knows our heart. I brought this today. Not for those of you who would be sleepy and want to fall asleep in the sermon today. So you can kind of like, Robin carried it in. I think she got a couple comments like, you going to sleep during your husband's sermon today? Um, No, because sometimes visuals are good for us. Some of you are visual learners. And I brought this pillow um, because I think this is what Jesus is getting at. You know, if you take a hammer, which this isn't really quite a hammer, but it's kind of like, you know, if you've got a hard heart, the word is like a sword. It'll do its work. Right? It can be hard, and knocking on something hard, to get through that's going to take quite a bit. But what Jesus wants is like the word and the gospel from the inside out to make us like this soft, squishy pillow. It doesn't mean we're not courageous and bold. It just means we're loving from the inside out. So that when the word comes to it to do the work, what does it land on? Ah, a nice, soft heart that's ready to receive it that's ready to be challenged by it, that's ready to be transformed by it. Not external in, legalism, inside out, but keeping the gospel the main thing. That's what we do here. And maybe that hammer will continue to to fall more and more softly on soft hearts at Bethany. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word today that gives us hope and comfort, and peace, and joy, and it convicts us as it does, did today for me, 
I am prone to legalism, just like all of us in here in some way. Lord, reveal it to us today individually in our hearts, but then let us flee right to the mercy and grace of Jesus and cling to the gospel as we know Jesus freed us from the law by keeping the law. Whole books of the Bible, Galatians, were written to show us we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works of the law. So keep us from that subtle, deadly, silent temptation. Let us be a church that celebrates gospel joyful obedience. It's in Christ's name.